Welcome to Sequelcast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. This time around, we are continuing our look at the Hanover trilogy with The Hanover Part 2. Directed by Todd Phillips, this originally came out in 2011. I met Bradley Shirky. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, listeners from here to Bangkok. That's right. In fact, One Night in Bangkok is even a musical number at the end, which I was greatly oh, pleased yeah, we'll by. Talk about that. Oh, yeah. Um, so, directed by Todd Phillips. He directed all three Hanover films. Uh, produced by Daniel Goldberg and Todd Phillips. Written by Scott Armstrong, <laughs> Craig Mazin, and Todd Phillips. Based off of characters by John Lucas and Scott Moore. Uh, starring Bradley Cooper, Ed Helm, Zach Galifianakis, Ken John, Jeffrey Tambor, Justin Bartha, and Paul Giamatti. Music by Christoph Beck, again. Cinematography, Lawrence Schur. And uh, edited by Deborah Neil Fisher and Mike Sale. Um off a budget of $80 million, which is quite high for a comedy. We'll get into why that is later. It made worldwide around $586 million. So let me compare that to the original. It actually made $100 million more than the original worldwide. So that's well, quite it, impressive. Although it well, cost about three times as much. Well, at the time, I think it held the record for the, the highest grossing R-rated comedy. That's right, it did, it did. And, um, you know, as we mentioned last week, and you can check out all our episodes at sequelcast2.podbean.com, um, the sequel for Hanover was greenlit before the original one even came out. The reaction to the trailer was so positive, and they had a feeling they had a hit on their hands. And, um, you know, this, this so budget... It's one of the times that, that worked out. <laughs> that's right. But this budget is so high because by the time the second movie came out, the three leads were movie stars, right? And they commanded <laughs> movie star salaries. Uh, yeah. Not to mention it's filmed in, in Thailand and you have a bit more, um, you have some car chases, you have a little bit of action in there. But, um, well, that's a question really, though. Is it, is, it, is it more expensive to film in Thailand than in, uh, than in Vegas? Although keeping uh, in mind, I guess they do spend uh, a lot of time right. at that one resort. And I'm sure that, that, that securing that location couldn't have been cheap. You know, that's a good point. And then you're probably working partially with Thai crews, which I imagine would be a lot cheaper. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, my guess is like the actors and the director's salary have made this so expensive. It's just unusual. You see a comedy cost $80 million. <laughs> no. Um, Especially I mean, one that isn't special effects driven. Right. I mean, the last... I'm, I'm looking up examples here of like other comedies that cost a lot of money. Uh, ben Stiller's Secret Life of Walter Mitty cost uh, around $90 million. Again, these cost without marketing stuff figured well, in there. Well, keep in mind, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, that, that is one that's pretty effects heavy. Sure. And, and the other one is um, uh, Evan Almighty was a famous example of the sequel to Bruce Almighty. Because of all the animal special effects, it cost $175 million, yeah, Didn't that like, hold the record for the most expensive comedy to produce? I think so. I think it's still <laughs> it's still the most expensive comedy, and you know, part of it might have been the the cost of doing those effects in in two thousand seven. They really took the Noah's Ark um, idea to the 
nth degree. Um, regardless, Hanover 2 is pretty expensive for a comedy. I just thought I'd bring that up. Um, when did you first see Hanover 2, Thrasher? Uh, I, I first saw it uh, just a few days ago while uh, preparing for this episode. The I have not seen uh, either, before doing the sequel cast 2, I had not seen either of the Hangover sequels. Hmm. And, and the way the first one ends, it doesn't really set itself up for a sequel either, which I thought was sort of nice. Well, I mean, the only thing you can do, which is what which is what they do, is just have another wedding with another bachelor party with another hangover. That's right. And, you um, you know, the hangover t- part two, I always want to say two, but it's actually part two is sort of a takeoff on how the Godfather movies, the sequels are part two and part three, <laughs> so forth. Um, it's the movie in the series I've seen the most, and it's the one I like the least. Huh. Because, it, you know, I did not... The original one I saw in the theater, the other ones I saw in video. The second one, I had rented it as soon as it came out on Redbox. And then a few months later, I was visiting family in Irvine, California. We uh, had time to kill, and we wanted to watch something on demand. So we just happened to pick The Hanover, too, because, like, there was nothing else good on. I think it was between this and the Disney Panda documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Real slim pickings. So we went with Hanover, too, because, like, oh, well, I know some of that's funny. And um, and what I remember watching from that with my dad is he laughed about half a dozen times throughout the movie, and then afterwards he said, that sucks. But I, what I was thinking in the back of my head is if you laugh six times during a comedy, that's not bad, all things considered. I've... I... I would disagree. Okay. Uh, like I, I feel like I I feel like I should I should be feeling a certain feeling of levity most of the way through for a comedy. And and this is while I did have several significant laughs during this film, I probably only laughed about six times and I was kind of underwhelmed. Hmm. And then uh the third time I saw Hanover two was uh, on an airplane. Because uh on an airplane, you know, you wanna kill time and uh it's was available and I'm like you know I want to watch something that's not too taxing on the old brain um so I watched that even though it's heavily censored of course <laughs> yeah I was and, about uh, to say yeah. like, is it is it 15 minutes long if you see it on an airplane and I almost wish they had that version as an extra on the DVD it was pretty <laughs> odd they they cut <laughs> a lot of stuff out um you know blurred stuff out it was really something and then uh, the most recent time yeah i've seen so i've seen this damn movie four times and um let's give an overall plot synopsis briefly so this takes place two years after the original just like this movie came out two years after the original and uh it it starts at you know a, a similar premise it's a wedding except this time Stu was getting married the first movie set up that his wife was a bitch and his marriage was on the rocks and so now he's married to a, um, a, a Thai woman we've never met before. Yeah, and that's that's one weakness that this that this film has because sure. one of the big uh, plot events in the first film is that Stu acts while drunk got married uh, to an escort. Uh, but at the mm-hmm. end of the movie, they realize they kind of have some things in common, so they're going to try to uh, to see each other. But in classic sequel fashion. Uh, that relationship not is completely ignored. Like it's acknowledged that it happened uh, about a third of the way into the film, but but that's it. We have to immediately get invested into a relationship that has nothing to do with the first movie. Yeah, it's it reminds me of uh, a long time ago in the original sequel cast show 
we did uh, Starship Troopers 3, and there's a lot of scenes in the beginning where they're talking to characters you've never seen before, but they're acting like, oh, we've had such good times in the war. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't know what you're from. Like, it's a forced attempt at introducing a new character. Yeah, um, yeah and it, it gets things off to Iran's start. We'll get uh, on that in a minute, but... Um, well, even, even as, then, though, yeah. like with, with his wife, his wife doesn't have – or his fiance doesn't have enough screen time to become, like, a, a real character. Uh, his his future father-in-law is a more established character than his future wife. And his future father-in-law, I think, is quite good, actually. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a weird dynamic, that's for sure. But basically uh, – he uh Stu saw all the was involved in all the craziness with the bachelor party so he initially says like it's going to be just over pancakes and then he they yeah, managed the to drag breakfast yeah the i have breakfast non-alcoholic of course right and yeah, uh, he, which which is the first of several bits of product placement in this movie although thankfully they don't belabor the point we also get pac-man later on don't forget about that um <laughs> pac-man needs those advertising dollars a lot of Billy Joel in this and the third movie, and this we'll talk about next week. Yeah. Although I doubt, although I doubt that's product placement, and yet I like to imagine Billy Joel. What? Well, there's going to be another Hangover. Get my agent on the phone. I have got to be a part of this movie. No, I don't know what Billy Joel sounds like when he speaks, so I just assume that that's his voice. It could be way <laughs> off. So the uh, the boys, along with the um, Stu's new brother-in-law, Teddy go and have a few beers out by the fire it's like bud light it's a pretty lame brand as i seem to recall and well, uh yeah it's, it's not it's not a local beer like they they, they do no. specify it's american beer if it's not budweiser it might be samuel adams or something it's sam adams it's, maybe it's it something... was sam adams it's in a green bottle yeah it, it doesn't look like it's not hipster beer i'll just say that much um yeah. And, and, and they've uh, and uh, and uh, Alan's brought marshmallows. They're like, oh, cool! We could roast marshmallows on the by the fire. Yeah, they they should have brought marshmallows, but that's a story for another time. Yeah. But yeah, so they all they all give a toast, uh, and then there's you know crazy series of uh, there's a there's a a date and or, or a night to day uh, transition, and everybody except uh, Ted they wake they wake up in a dingy hotel in Bangkok. <laughs> Right, and then from there, it's sort of uh, similar to the first film, except it's in Thailand and things are a lot darker, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so let's, before we talk about the film proper, uh, I just want to go over some of the new cast members in here, because um, we talked about the old ones in last week's episode. Um, we, we mentioned there wasn't a whole lot for um, Jamie Chun to do as Lawrence Risai, Stu's fiance. Um, I, I have to admit, though, I thought Mason Lee as Teddy, the brother, was better than Justin Bartha in the first film. He he left a good he left a really good impression yeah. on me. I I liked him like what he's he doesn't get too much screen time, but what little screen time he has it was was so effective that I really hoped that the third film was going to be about him getting married and we were going to, and he was going to be a principal character. Cause I, I saw some real potential in that character. He has a nice likability. And I didn't realize this. He is a, uh, he's the son of, uh, Academy award winning director on Lee. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's been in movies here and there and, and stuff. And he's uh half Taiwanese, half American. And, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. I didn't realize he had that 
connection, but I, I wouldn't have guessed. But I, he just gave a very natural winning performance. Even though he doesn't have much time, he just comes across as... Uh, he has a little bit of an arc in that he's the beloved member of the family. He's the special one. And he well, seems he's to... The oldest, he's the oldest male yeah. child that the father has clearly pumped all of his hopes and dreams into. Right, but he seems to like have fun having a beer with the guys. And I, there's something about his presence that's sort of calming. And I wish he would have been in the movie more. But I... Yeah, I, I just thought he was surprisingly good. Um, we have uh as you mentioned uh, the the father-in-law uh Nirut Sarinjaya played by uh who's playing Fon Srisai uh gives a lot of insults to Stu at the beginning I, th- I think it's it almost feels like something out of a smarter film I don't know it it doesn't he compares him to like this rice porridge dish yeah, he, he gives that, that great, at the rehearsal dinner, he gives that great speech where he compares stew to this specific rice dish, which is only suitable for babies and the extremely elderly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, it's, one of the, it's, it's one of those things where, like, the, the, the notion that, that Stu's going to have to win over, win over his, uh, his fiancé's father, like, that, that's, that's pretty cliche, but they make they make his future father-in-law's distaste for him so heightened that I feel like it, it really works. We do get some good jokes out of it. I look into his eyes. They are not the eyes of a man. <laughs> great. But I think there's also some, some truth to that too. Sometimes when you have people marrying into families of different, um, from different countries or, or different races or whatever it is, there, there's a, a feeling of being an outsider. How is this outsider, you know, marrying someone from our family? Um, I, I worked with a guy that was Irish who was married to a, a, a Chinese woman. And he said, you know, to get her family's trust, he had to work unpaid washing dishes in their restaurant for years. That sounds like a scam. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah, maybe it was. Maybe that's what they did with all her boyfriends, right? Well, for you need to... We don't need to pay a dishwasher. We can get uh, the, the men to do it. But, um, it, you know, sometimes there's issues with the, the father-in-law and the... Or, you know, with the in-laws. There's always... Some of them work out. Some of them don't. And so I think... I, I like that conflict. And uh, But on the other hand, I mean, the Hanover movies, you want to watch to see the, the crazy going-ons. And there's much more time in the setup of this film. Uh, one last thing about a cast member, Paul Giamatti is in here, which I forget oh, yeah. every time I watch this movie. Uh, he's in it far too brief, but I think he does, he does a good job of, um, he kind of underplays it a bit, which is a bit surprising because you get a lot of over the top acting in these movies, but he, he, uh, he has a good role in here. Well, he turns in a, a good understated workhorse, workhorse Paul Giamatti performance. Right, it's not as over the top as when he was pig vomit in uh, <laughs> private parts, but or what was the other one he did? He did this movie where it was um, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. Well, yeah, like Planet of the Apes, or there, there's some where he's a bad guy, like who eats carrots constantly, and there's a lot of sex jokes in it. Um, oh, I'll I'll find that one in a minute. Hold on. Um, <laughs> Does it have the number Slevin in the title? <laughs> no, but it was around the same time as those uh, pictures. I'm going to look this up. Hold on. He was also a producer on the movie. Um, Shoot 'em Up. Oh. Did you ever see that? It had Clive Owen and Monica Bellucci. 
No, uh, I'm afraid not. Uh, you might like it. It's a very over-the-top sort of Tarantino knockoff thing. Um, but uh, anyhow, yeah, it, it's nice to see Giamatti in here. Um, it would have made sense for him to be in the third movie, but he's not. But we'll talk about that next week. So, Hanover 2, um, what do you think about the setup of this compared to the original? You do get a similar thing where you start with the scene, you don't know what's happening, you know things are bad. Um, what, Phil is on the, played by uh, Stanley, what the hell am I doing? Yeah, Phil, played by Bradley Cooper, I almost said Stanley Cooper, that's not right. <laughs> Phil uh, is on the phone saying, oh my god, things are really bad, we're going to be a little bit late, and it's like the same, exact same setup as the original. Yeah, although it takes, it takes so much longer to get to that point though after we get out of that that flash forward i guess that's the that's the thing i don't like about the setup since we know what's going to happen because we've seen the first hangover film i feel like we don't need it to start with that desperate phone call at the 11th hour of them on the rooftop wasted not knowing where teddy is why not have him drunk for the opening credit sequence and then it, it just hard cuts right into them waking up you know passed out in the room that, that that could do it. You could you could have gotten to the hangover uh, much sooner. <laughs> although yeah, I do, it, yeah. although once things get going, though, I do like it when uh, when they're kind of guilted into letting Alan come along to the wedding in Thailand, and they go they go to visit uh, Alan at his parents' place, and all those fo- crazy photos <laughs> from the first film that they had all pro- sworn to delete, Alan has printed them out and turned them into wallpaper, <laughs> and his room is covered in them. Yeah, that they promised to delete afterwards. That That's pretty good. I also like that he has a, a speaker system on the phone he uses to talk to his mom, and he demands that he makes her milkshakes, like Mother Oreo milkshake now. Yeah, was... oh, I guess we don't do dessert in this house anymore. I didn't get that memo. <laughs> it's, it's a funny line, and um, it, it's nice to see Jeffrey Tambor, even though he's in here, even more brief than he was in the original. Yeah, we and it and I like it's the movie is there's a lot more Alan in this film and the movie's front loaded with right. Alan jokes. Most yeah. of them are pretty good. The two that really stand out, one is when when they agree to let him come with them to Thailand. He goes, "Oh, that's great." And he just reaches into his mini fridge, pulls out a syringe and injects himself and explains <laughs> that that was his immunization and that was the last day he could give it to himself before the trip. And like that's just terrifying that he has vaccines in his mini fridge and there's no explanation of how he got them. But then also when they're boarding the plane, uh, you know, they're all doing that, that slow walk to the to the terminal. And Alan has this giant pipe that he's smoking, yeah. which, which I, I think it's hilarious that he has the that, he, that he's just kind of strutting along with the pipe. However, that joke didn't land 100 percent for me because he then like exhales a big plume of smoke. And it is so obviously CG CGI smoke. smoke. Like, it, it looks like he's exhaling something that's going to turn into a ghost. Yeah, like, you can't really smoke in an airport. I guess you could film him smoking elsewhere than composite it with live-action footage. Even Yeah, I don't know. It, it That sort of stuff annoys me. The worst example of comic CG I've ever seen in a film is from uh, Me, Myself, and Irene, the um, Far- Farrelly Brothers uh, comedy with Jim Carrey, where oh, yeah. he has sort of a dual... 
does he have a dual role or he does anyway there's well, something where he plays he plays uh, uh, uh he plays like the world's nicest police officer who ends up developing a split personality and his alternate personality is the world's like shittiest police officer Right, I think that the shittiest person, the police officer, does a gag where he's walking on the street, and then you see the camera sort of a uh, bird's eye view above him. He looks in the air and spits, and you see this super cartoon, awful CG spit go up in the air, and then it falls back in his mouth. It's like a gross out, like the gag itself isn't bad, but the CG does nothing, like it, it feels like something out of Flubber, it's so uh, out of place. Oh, now so, did Flubber have a sequel? Uh, the original one did, yeah, I think you had Flubber and Son of Flubber, and then you had the, I mean, that could be something on sequel cast for some other time, and then you did the Robin Williams Flubber. And then there was that TV movie series, but the less said about that, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, I like there's a gag in the airport where they're, uh, the gain is there with, um, with Teddy, and they're going to take off on the plane to Thailand. And uh, there's a bit of business where Alan, I think, throws Teddy's headphones across the room. Oh, yeah. Alan is such a complete dick to Teddy because Alan, like, he... he, 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 he He's feels... not one of the wolf pack, yeah. Yeah, and Alan is still married to the idea that they're part of the wolf pack. <laughs> Something That's that right. no one agreed to but him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh... He's just, like, such a dick to him every step of the way, and Teddy just takes it with um, as good as anyone could, and I think that just makes him very endearing. Yeah, it's it's I, I, it's a quiet, put-upon dignity, I guess, that the character has. So we mentioned it takes longer until they get to the part at which they're hung over. Do you think too much time is spent at the, the sort of big dinner where Alan makes his speech... And it's a bit like a, a retread of the Wolfpack speech. I don't. Um, I don't mind the the big dinner scene. Uh, I just wish it had gotten there sooner. I think you know because that's mm, where we get mm-hmm. the great scene comparing uh, stew to rice. Uh, I guess. Th- I guess the problem with that speech is not so much that Alan's speech like echoes his his Wolfpack speech from the first film. Just just that. It is it is just a string of non sequiturs and there's not much character behind it. And this is also but this is also the only scene that acknowledges Stu's relationship with the escort from the first film. Right, even that seems a bit forced. Um I do like that um Alan gives random Thai facts as if the audience who is m- mainly from Thailand wouldn't know these things. Oh yeah, and and they're all they're all the type of facts that you'd see in the sidebar for the Wikipedia page for Thailand. I did really like that, and I do like that his list of Thailand facts ends up coming into play later in the film. It does. Yeah, that's a, that's a good callback. It's um But yeah, after the the game goes and has their marshmallows and beer, they wake up. They don't know what's happened. Of course, uh, as to kind of fall into place what happened in the first film you see there's some bodily damage done to stew this time around it's a tattoo that's a mock version of the mike tyson's face tattoo um also alan has shaved his head which i don't think is a bad look really i mean it looks a bit strange with the big bushy beard and the shaved head but i've seen stranger things and it makes it look distinctive from the first film True. It just although on the list of things you can do, shaving your heads 
maybe the second least crazy thing you could do on that list. Would you rather he have had, like, a Hitler mustache or a... No. Well, actually, they probably should have done something to his beard. Hmm. I guess because, right, his beard is more iconic than his fluffy hair, right? Yeah. So you could have done, uh, like a 1930s box, boxer mustache. The, the mutton chops or something, mutton yeah. Mutton chop, yeah, something. But, you know, during, during the scene, they're also attacked by a monkey in a Rolling Stones concert vest. Yes, and uh, they actually got the, the monkey addicted to cigarettes as a result of this movie. Oh, um, shit, that was real, huh? Yeah, mm-hmm. that well, because that was the thing. If we can jump forward a bit, because there's a scene where yeah, we see sure. the monkey smoking cigarettes on a rooftop, and I was looking at that, and and I was like, well, the CGI smoke for Alan looked so bad, and this looks so good. This has to be real smoke, which I guess they could get away with in Thailand, but I can't That's imagine right. that anyone would actually want to do. And I felt really conflicted about that. But now apparently it was it was real cigarette smoke, which accounts for how good it looked. I was hoping in my heart of hearts, I was hoping that the reason it looked so good is that the CGI animators just wanted to make this the best looking smoking monkey ever. Uh, apparently, I was wrong. Yeah, uh, even though the the monkey was a an, a monkey, you know, that rented out for the you know that's trained in film because, and the reason why you have to train animals to that so they don't get spooked by all the lights and noise and strange people on a, on a film set is um, the monkey injured all three main actors in the film with claw marks and bite <laughs> marks and all sort of things. Like it was just a, a bit out of control. Um, but it adds a lot of character to the film. I know like the most cliche thing is let's add a monkey to it, but that Alan is so overjoyed by a monkey is is a nice sort of callback to some of his more innocent qualities in the first film. Yeah, it is sort of endearing that that he he thinks the monkey is just this wonderful magical creature, and of course the monkey is also our gateway into the return of Leslie Chow. Yeah, because they wake up and uh, Chow is in the room. They don't find Teddy. They find his finger, and they know it's his finger because it has his um, class ring on it. Which is weird, though, because normally you don't get the class ring until after you started going to the school. Maybe, yeah, maybe things are different in Thailand. That's not really explained terribly well. Oh, no, he's well. going to Stanford. He's oh, going to Stan- shit, that's right. He's going to Stanford, Stanford. Yeah. That's, that's an right. American university. Top, top university. Um, yeah. The, that Leslie Chow is in the room makes sense, and he's about to explain every... I love this bit, that he's about to explain everything that happens. But then he does one bump of cocaine and just collapses. And, and, and his heart stops. And his heart stops. Yeah. And so they dump him in an icebox, which I guess isn't a terrible place to hide a body, all things considered. But Well, I think I, I, think I know why they, they put him in the icebox. And I know this only because I used to read a lot of true crime. Uh, but the uh, there there are people who, when they want to hide a corpse, pack the corpse with ice. And the reason they do is that the ice messes with the rate of decay, which is which uh, it, it used to make it difficult to t- pinpoint the time of death. So it made it easier for you to establish an alibi. Oh, uh, I don't yeah. think that's the case anymore. I think they can do analysis of gut bacteria and stuff that it's you know in the core of the body that's that's that will still let you pinpoint roughly the the time of death regardless of the state of exterior decay so what do you think about the uh the sort of loophole in the plot where 
Doug left the campfire early, so he doesn't get to go along for the adventures. Well, it's kind of in keeping because Doug Doug isn't a comical character, uh, and I'm not sure this kind of movie really needs a straight man following these people around. Um, and and yet, part of me wants to see what Doug is like under you know. I want to see Doug get crazy. I think that's the one. That's one thing that was missing from the first film, and is kind of missing from this film. Why not? Why not give Doug a chance to have some real fun? Although it right. does deep. Although it does deepen the mystery because at first everyone's really paranoid that their beer was drugged because of what happened in the first film with the whiskey being drugged. Uh, so it, it helps. It helps preserve the mystery of who's responsible for them going absolutely crazy. And it is sort of nice. You get a bit of a mystery still in this film. It's less of a strong element than it was in the original. But you know they sort of piece together the clues going from place to place. Whether it's uh, they. They go to the police station and uh, they they find an old monk with Teddy's sweatshirt, and then yeah, they go they to where the monk. Yeah, yeah, they return. Yeah, because at first they think it's Teddy, uh, but they uh, they take him back to his they take him back to his monastery, which leads to one of one of the good set pieces where the monast the the meditation area everything is supposed to be absolutely silent. So anytime someone says anything, they get beaten by this bamboo stick. And I love how prolonged the beatings get, especially when screaming also gets you beaten. There's some yeah, great physical comedy there. Good physical gags. Uh, it, it makes you almost feel sympathetic for these guys that they act like, oh, they should have had a sign saying, you know, if you talk, you'll get the shit beat out of you. But it's a it's a temple. You know, most people would think those would be quiet. Um now, although this does lead to, I think, one of the best sequences in this film where they, uh, you know, the, the old the old monk kind of gives this gesture, which makes the monk that they're speaking to talk about how the Buddha teaches that, you know, memories, you know, all memories are, are treasured in your mind or something. So they all meditate. And what I love is that Alan achieves a transcendental state and relives in his memory all the the events of the night before but in his memory everyone is a child so we get to see children engaging in all sorts of acts of debauchery it is hilarious except except for teddy oh yeah except for teddy <laughs> which i guess makes sense because it goes to show oh he's not one of the wolf pack so he doesn't get to be shown as a kid, although Chow does, which is sort of strange. But yeah, it, it's a good surreal sequence, and it, it and it's all done. Gives them... It's all done to the tune of "I'm a Bee" by the Black Eyed Peas, which I think is the only good use of that song. And it's just uh, it's an excuse to get a clue to go to the next place. Um, here's a bit of trivia: so they go to the tattoo parlor where Stu got his face tattooed, and sort of much like in the first film, uh, I'm repeating that a lot because in some ways this feels like a remake of the original, but worse. It, um, it, the tattoo artist says, like, oh, Stu cried like a bitch the whole time, blah, blah, blah. That, the tattoo artist is played by Nick Cassavetes, but originally it was supposed to be played by Mel Gibson. Really? Yep, and Mel Gibson agreed to do it, and then Zach Galifianakis, um, used some of his power to say, no, I will not do it with Mel Gibson, because this was, uh, around the same time Mel Gibson got in trouble for... Uh, he got pulled over by the police for a DUI, and he was shouting anti-Semitic rants. Yeah, and he and he was also he was also, uh, if I remember correctly, he was also like sexually harassing the officer because it, it was a woman. Um, yes, he called her sugar tits, and he was also involved in a lawsuit about him uh, physically abusing his uh, girlfriend at the time. 
Oh, yeah. So you there's know, a lot going on. Think... There was kind of the start of Mel Gibson's decline. and But lately it seems like he's on the rebound with the, the Oscar nominations for, um, oh, what is it? That, uh, that military film he did. Uh, was the, oh, oh, cr- the, um, the, 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 the one guy, with the, the pacifist soldier. Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw yes. Ridge. That's the one. Yep. Yes. Yeah. I, I feel that's maybe that's just the, the hangover films attract people who have had scandals in their career. First, the first being Mike Tyson, uh, the second one being Mel Gibson. Although the only, I don't, do you, do you remember the ripped from the headlines law and order based, uh, based around that Mel Gibson incident starring Chevy Chase? I didn't see that, but now I think I might have to. That's pretty funny. That's good casting for Chevy Chase. Um, well, well, Chevy Chase does a great performance, but it's a great performance because he his whole character is to just be the worst asshole in every scene he's in. <laughs> and Chevy Chase makes a great asshole. Um, oh, yeah. Also, they wanted Liam Neeson was also going to be the bartender when Mel Gibson got shot down, but uh, Liam Neeson couldn't free it up in his schedule. So instead they have Nick Cassavetes, who isn't an actor a lot of people would recognize. Um, no, I didn't recognize him. And and he's the son of John Cassavetes and Gina Rollins. Well, and you know he's... what's you, funny? You mentioned those getting those kinds of big names in there. A little later on in the film, like when, when organized crime got involved, I was like, oh, I want Jason Statham to show up and be one of these gangsters. Why can't Jason Statham show up? Yeah, that would have been good, wouldn't it? Or, um... God, yeah, or someone with that... Or Joe Pesci or something? I don't know. You could have done... Some something would have been a good get. Um, let's go back to what we're talking about. So there, there's something that's uh, I think in in retrospect. Uh, granted, this is a comedy, and I I don't think comedy should have boundaries. But what do you think of the treatment and the reveal of? Um, do you know where I'm going with this? I think I do. When when they when they go to the the Siam Sam's uh, strip uh, club. Yes, right. They go to the strip club, and it's which, revealed. Which... Which is, I oh, believe it's yeah. run by the same Middle Eastern guy from the first film, isn't it? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I think f- that I actors... feel like Samir, because yeah, it's owned by Samir, I feel, like, I feel like the implication is that's supposed to be the same guy from the first film. And uh, it's the same guy, but he's playing a different character. Same actor, but a different character. Yeah, but the uh, but yeah, so so they get there, and then you know, Stu says, "Well, you spent all night in the champagne room with this with one, you know, one of one of our one of our girls." So they go, uh, you know, they go to talk to her because she's just starting her shift, and and you know, Stu discovers that the that the night before he he and the stripper had had sex, and they both climaxed at the same time, and he cried afterwards, and it was like the most beautiful, it was like the most beautiful intimate experience either mm-hmm. one of them had ever had. And at first, Stu is upset because, oh, no, this means I've cheated on my fiance. Uh, and then it's revealed that uh, that the stripper is, in fact, uh, is, in fact, transgendered. And we actually see her completely nude. And Stu, Stu is immediately like sort of freaks, freaks the fuck out. Uh, and I think. And, and I understand I understand what you're saying, because the, the scene, the scene doesn't. You can't you can't tell whether the scene is like inherently like transphobic or if the scene is, right. is mocking is mocking Stu's own potential transphobia. I think what the scene needs to really land though is that one of the other members of the Wolf Pack should be completely into it. Should, well, should either be completely mm. into it or should be or should be 
sort of accepting of it almost to a comical extreme. I think we need, we need the other, like his, his freak out over, over the prostitute having a penis needs to be contrasted with somebody being, being completely or, or way too into the prostitute having a penis. That's well and said because say- Stu acts like immediately, Oh, he's got to vomit. Oh, that's so gross. How could that happen? And I, I think, you know, the reaction of the other members of the Wolfpack, if I'm remembering this correctly, is, like, they just sort of, like, laugh at him and go, like, oh, man, that's so crazy, but there's no... I mean, you think of all the people, if one of them was to have a, a somewhat supportive reaction, I think it might be Alan or something. Um, yeah, but I feel like that would almost be too too obvious, and even then, sure. if Alan was into it, it would just be purely for the sake of, of perversion. I feel like... Uh, mm, mm. I feel like if 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 you want one of if one of the characters is going to be, be into filled, it or accepting yeah. of it and to have it to have it matter, uh, I think it needs. I think it's, oh crud! I think it I think it needs to be the 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 sort of overconfident cool guy. I think it needs to be Bradley Cooper as Phil. Right, that's interesting. Yeah, because that would be a better because Phil Phil is the cool asshole. Uh, you know, right. I mean, his, his, the introduction to his character is him trying to steal a prescription pad from Stu so he can get some of his own, so he can get drugs. Um, like he, for it to, for it to really have impact, he needs to be the one that's accepting of the situation. But can we talk about? There's a lot of penis in this movie. There is, there is. Uh, I think that that is something you see in in comedies from like um, 2000. Five or two thousand six onward, a lot more uh, penis in comedies. But yeah, this movie has a lot of peni, um, <laughs> a peen. What's the plural? Uh, n- not just in the, uh, the the transgender prostitute area, but I think also once again you see um, oh Ken John's penis as Mr. Chow at some point. Yep. That's in fact that's the early on because they see he's buried under a bunch of rags and his penis is sticking (laughs) out and they just assume it's a leftover mushroom and the monkey and the monkey's reaching for it like oh is that a nut what is that and then I think that was a pretty good reveal. Um, What other penises do you have in mind? Uh, Those those are the two that stand out. Now that I think about it, I I don't. (sighs) Yeah, those are those are the two that stand out. But like, usually if you get it at all, you only get the one. Right, so I mean that that it's more of them on screen is interesting, you know, and that you cannot have an erect penis because that would be an X for whatever reason. Um, <laughs> and I, I I love the biggest takeoff I've seen like on a on a penis, and the recent rush of penis gags was in um, Harold and Kumar go to Guantanamo Bay, and there's a scene where they go to a a, a party, but it's a bottomless party, and it's all women <laughs> with. Uh, no bikini bottoms, but one of them accidentally takes off the bikini top, and they're like, "No, no, no, put that back on. This is a bottomless party." <laughs> I thought that was a, a clever take on that sort of a gag. Um, but so we we get some. Uh, once again, it's revealed that Alan has drugged something. It wasn't the beer because they they check. I, I like that they check for the beer to see that it's sealed, and it is. But the marshmallows. But he only yeah. gave the drugged marshmallows to Teddy, and then they got sort of mixed up. 
Yeah, and so everybody ended up taking the drug marshmallows except Doug, which is why Doug went back to the hotel and why he's their their link with the with the world of sanity throughout this movie. Uh, and, and the whole reason he drugged the marshmallows was he wanted to uh, is that uh, Alan wanted to knock Ted unconscious so that he wouldn't ruin their in, in Teddy's mind or in Stu's mind ruin their good time. <laughs> And what, what was it? It was it was horse tranquilizer and ADHD medication? Or I think that's, yeah, that's about right. Um, God. And then later in the third movie, it's revealed that he only had, um, that four marshmallows would have killed them. Yeah, so he, he, had, he had, yeah, he made it so you'd have to, and in his mind, no one would ever eat four. So that's why he thinks it was safe. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a nice callback. Um so, what do you think about, we get the stuff where the, the business where uh, the monkey gets stolen, and they meet up with um, Paul Giamatti, and they go and get Chow and so forth? Well, yeah, because like, Paul, Paul Giamatti, you know, he's set up to be this, like, gangster type, and that apparently they all got involved in some sort of presumably illegal weapons deal with Paul Giamatti, uh, and... Because and- on, Alan, Alan on his chest in Sharpie has written, like, this location at this time. Yeah, and that's and that's where they and right. they go to that location at that time, and that's how they meet uh, meet Giamatti. And yeah, and so the and that apparently um, Leslie Chow had like access co- had a bank number and access codes to uh, trace to to transfer the funds for the deal. And so they decide, well, we'll we'll have to go, we'll have to search uh, Leslie's body to find it. So they go and they break into the ice machine, which is now locked up. Uh, and it turns out. Leslie Chow is alive. It turns out that when he takes cocaine, sometimes his heart stops for a little bit. <laughs> He's been trapped in a freezer all day. And it's also a bit of a callback to the original in that when they open up the uh, the ice, Leslie Chow just leaps out and starts beating the shit out of people. <laughs> sort of like how he leaped out of the uh, back of the car, the trunk in the original. Yeah, but then they go after it. So all together, uh, they realize that then Leslie Chow reveals that all the information he needs for the deal is hidden in the vest of the monkey, <laughs> which they stole from. Which they find out they stole from a drug dealer. So they then go to get the monkey back. And I really like this whole setup with the monkey because not only does it use the song "Pusher Man," which is one of my all-time favorite '70s funk songs, but it is kind of genius that this drug dealer has trained this monkey to to grab cash and give people drugs and it creates a situation where the drug dealer never has to touch his own stash to get drugs to his clients it's a smart plan and that's when we see the monkey smoking as, as we hear in the music the theme song to the the film pusher a oh, pusher man yeah pusher man Oh, it's a great song, but yeah, and, and I so I do I do like all the bits with the monkey, and I like that Alan is still delighted with the monkey, even though they're trying to steal the monkey from a from a Taiwanese drug dealer, uh, and and oh god, and, and it, then that leads to actually a pretty fun car chase sequence. It's a good car the chase sequence, th- and they have to you know meet back up with um, Paul Giamatti with Chow and Tow. Yeah, and they meet him. Uh, they meet him on this uh, r- rooftop, and uh, 
and it's and it's pretty and and I do kind of like that whole bit where they go where uh, Alan's reading out the bank code. He types it in. Okay, now read out the password. And he reads out the password. And the password for the bank account to authorize <laughs> the transfer is baloney one. He's like, your password's baloney one. Well, it used to be baloney, but now they make you add a number. That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and that is such a wonderful 21st century joke. Uh, I don't know how many times I've come up with the perfect password that I will remember, but then whatever I'm getting the password for won't accept it because it doesn't have a number. Right. So then I add it's... an arbitrary number, and then from then on I never remember the password. Or it's like they have a number in a special character, and it can only be certain special characters. Yeah. I. Oh, yeah have that a lot. And what's um, great is when they don't spell that out. They only tell you when once they've rejected the first password. So before uh I think one thing I want to talk about before we get to the end, we have kind of a reprisal of Stu doing a musical number. Oh, where he's time, playing he's playing the guitar boat. singing Allentown. <laughs> right, Billy Joel song Allentown. But instead, he changes the lyrics and makes it about Allen's town, and uh, it's it's a cute moment. It's 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 funny. The, the only although the only like it's I like that we get to see uh, Ed Helms play play the guitar, which he does know how to do. I like it when a talent is showcased. But funny enough, the only thing that I really laughed about was one the sort of lameness of doing a Billy Joel song parody uh, I found that sort of co- that, that in itself comical even though I didn't really find the words comical but just when when in the middle of the song uh Alan just laughs and goes oh yeah I remember that <laughs> oh but we do we do get one plot thing though with uh is that it turns out that the that Paul Giamani is actually an Interpol agent and the whole thing with the bank transfer was a sting operation uh so Leslie Chow gets arrested and swears revenge. Uh, and the whole reason they're working with Paul Giamatti is he claims that they have Teddy. Turns out he was lying. He was just lying to get leverage so that they could get the sting operation to go off. I almost wish they would have set up uh, Paul Giamatti a little bit earlier in another scene. Well, they sort of did because there is a scene where, where Leslie Chow talks about all the people that are after him. And before he gets to the comedy one, he says Interpol. So there was a part of me that was suspicious of Paul Giamatti. It's just when he makes the reveal that he's an Interpol agent, I don't think it hits as hard as it could have. No, I guess, yeah, I think we're meant to be wowed by the helicopter that shows up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so everyone's sort of at, the, at their wit's end. They're all at this, they're all at this, like, Riverside Cafe. Uh, Alan's playing Pac-Man. Uh, there's a power outage. Uh, and... It, then I think it's uh, Phil Stu. asks. Oh, yeah, Phil yeah. asks, or yeah, Stu asks Phil. Well, how many power outages does Thailand have? And he rattles off a fact about their electrical grid, and that's sort of the the that's the usual suspects moment where all the pieces fall in together. And this this I kind of liked because it did because like the one of the first things they do when they look for Ted is they go to the roof of the hotel, assuming that it's mm-hmm. just going to be a retread of the first film, but he's not there. And in this one, they realize, Oh, wait a minute. Now I know what happened. Now I've pieced it together. When Ted cut off his finger, he must've wanted to put, you know, he, the finger was in a bowl of water, but that water must've been ice to preserve the finger. Ted must have gone to get ice, got the ice, but then the power went out. 
And then they realize Ted must be trapped in the elevator because the elevator would have stopped when the power went out. Hmm. And so they run back to the hotel. They find they find the elevator, and he's trapped between floors, and he's completely wasted. And so I did I did kind of like that bit of mystery solving. That being said, the power has been back on for a while, so I'm not entirely sure why the elevator is still stuck. Right. That's the it's, only weakness there. The other thing, it it did make me think though, and it's like. What's the worst situation to be in? Is it to be trapped in an elevator for a few days, or is it to be trapped on the roof of Las Vegas in the summer? For probably a few days? the roof, because you could probably. I would think die so. The he, sun damage. Yeah, the heat stroke might get you. Because uh, at least, at least Teddy had a bucket of ice which he could drink from. And he maybe had to drink his own urine. I don't know, but if he possible. did, I'm sure they would have mentioned it. Yeah, they're not. They're not the kind to let that slide. Um, but then we get we. I wish this movie had a bit more of a victory lap, but mm, they do mm-hmm. get Leslie Chow's boat because Leslie Leslie gave the keys to Alan, uh, and Alan apparently used to used to be a fixture at a yacht club, so he knows how to operate. He's the ironically he's the best at driving a or piloting a boat. Uh, he even navigates exactly to where they need to be because of these yacht club skills, which I thought I found very endearing. But then that he insists that everybody call him captain or he won't talk to them on the boat. Right, and it's it's not it's as cool as in the first movie where they're they're driving and they do sort of like a mid highway transfer of the tuxedos. It, yeah, it. I mean, it, it's a cool visual. I, I I kind of like it when he um, crashes the speedboat onto where the wedding is. Oh yeah, he refuses to he refuses to stop. So yeah, he drives the boat up the beach and it skids into the wedding uh, area, uh, and. I don't know if you noticed this, but when they're all getting out of the boat and uh, Stu is kind of making his case to his father-in-law, that like demanding respect, you know, maybe I am rice, rice with a little bit of cayenne pepper. There's a demon in me. Um, in the background, Zach Galifianakis prepares an anchor and throws it off the side of the boat, <laughs> even though it's uh-huh. on land. That made me laugh so hard. That bit of that bit of acting in the background. I. Don't think Stu's speech entirely works. It's supposed to get him, you know, his revenge on the father-in-law. Well, not revenge, but, but respect. Re- respect. But, I, I don't know, it just somehow doesn't feel earned, and it could just be, I never feel like they establish his relationship with his fiancée that, that, as good as even they did with uh, Heather Graham in the first movie. Yeah, although I do, I do like in the wedding where he explains to his to his fiance that he's going the, the soon as they get back to the states, he's going to have the tattoo lasered off, and she kind of jokes like, "Okay, but it is kind of cute." Although maybe I should stand over here, and they switch positions so she doesn't have to look at the tattoo when they're getting married. Hmm. And I kept expecting the priest to be stunt somebody stunt casted, but he but it, but it wasn't. Right. But this all lead though, this leads to one joke that should probably have been my favorite part of the movie, but it falls very flat. So very, very early in the movie, Alan gets off the phone and says, I was just arranging your wedding gift with my father. Uh, uh, we've spared, uh, he spared no expense. And then at the end, we find out what that wedding gift is. So there's a band, there's the band, there's a band playing live music and all of a sudden they're interrupted uh, when a bunch of dancing girls come out, they start playing an acoustic version of One Night in Bangkok, but then Mike Tyson comes out singing One Night in Bangkok. And that should have been great, 
but he's such a bad singer, it's not funny. He's a bad singer, it's not funny, and they perform, um, like, I think a whole verse in the chorus, which is too long. If you're going to have the guy not sing and not do an interesting, like, spoken word interpretation of it, like a William Shatner take on it, like, you could have just had him do two lines of the chorus and that's it. It doesn't... I mean, if you had had the Dan Band come back and do One Night in Bangkok. Well, they would they would have put some stank on it, certainly, but, like, they... Yeah. They... Mike Tyson's voice is not a singer's voice, and... It's not comically bad, it's just bad. Uh, so, like, I will give them points for coming up with the gag of Mike Tyson singing One Night in Bangkok, but the premise is much better than the execution. I would like to point out that um, One Night in Bangkok is a hit single from the musical Chess, which I saw on stage once. It's one of the worst musicals I've ever seen. <laughs> it's, and that um, song is 80s as hell, but there is something catchy about it. Oh, I love that song, and uh, but it, it originally started as a lot of musicals do as a concept album before it was taken to stage, and they're trying to uh, rejigger it to put it on Broadway in 2018. We'll see how that goes. But it, the idea is it's a musical loosely based off of the match from uh, 1972 between Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky. And there's a lot of interpretive dance, and um, yeah... It it's just as as a musical concept, I think it's somewhat absurd and it takes itself way too seriously. Wow! But one night in Bangkok is is a good track. I like that one. And uh, it yeah, Tyson. It doesn't quite work. And his um, I thought Tyson was funny in their original. And I'm not sure what's off about his performance here. No, but I it think... just seems real forced. I think I think it is it, it just it all comes down to his singing. It's just such it's so embarrassingly yeah. bad that there's very little to laugh at. But I do but you know I do I do like at the end when when the Wolf Pack and Teddy and Mike Tyson are all gathered around just talking and they find another set of pictures uh that they once again agreed that they're going to look at and then delete. And I do, I do like that. I do like we get to see some of the craziness uh, from the night before played out in these photos. This was one of my my favorite sequences during the credits, uh, and most of it's pretty pretty cool. I do like the bit where we see Stu getting the tattoo, but at one point, uh, Alan is giving him the tattoo. <laughs> right, and, and we also see all the blood and the screaming. Yeah, and we also get to see we also get to see Stu uh, Stu uh, having sex uh, with with the uh, with the prostitute. We get to see a lot of we. I think we get, I think we get to see Leslie Chow's dick one more time in these photos. Right. Uh, I would like Maybe to. I was doing one. some research. I found um, the late Roger Ebert did a review of the Hanover Part Two. Ooh. And he he mentions. Uh, he gives this movie two stars. I think the original he might have given like four stars or three and a half. He really liked the first one. But this one he says like, this is a raunch fest, yes, but not an offense against humanity. Parentheses. Except for that photo, which is a desecration of one of the two most famous photos to come out of the Vietnam War. I did not you know catch that. Did you? So he's referencing... I only caught it because I read this review before rewatching this film and, and was really looking closely. At the end, we're showing the photos. The next to last photo is, I think, of uh, Bradley Cooper 
holding up a gun against Chow's head, and Chow's head is tilted at an angle with his eyes closed. And it's a it's a parody of a famous Vietnam War video of a civilian getting shot point blank. Wow, no, I did not catch that. It's the next last photo they show. It's a real blink and you miss it moment. You have to be very familiar with um popular Vietnam War <laughs> photography to yeah, I it, guess... it's a real deep cut. And I don't think that's I don't think that's out of line. I mean, clearly they do those photos messing around on the set, but I think that's interesting. It disturbed Ebert so much he dedicated a, a sentence or two to it in his review. Wow, that is that is dark. I did not I did not catch that that was a that that was a reference uh, to to a real historical photograph. Let's see. Can I find? I why am I? In searching Vietnam well, we, War. Oh, there it should, is. This should have been pre-searched. I guess. I guess if they're going to make a reference to a real photo that, and they want it to be a good reference but not too horrific, they probably should have done one of the Jane Fonda Viet Cong photographs. So here's the photo. Oh wow! So the sequel cast may be about to take a dark turn. Oh, I have seen this photograph before. I did not make the connection that it was. Uh, I did not make the connection that this was what they were referencing in the film. It's a real blink and you miss it thing during the credits, but it's um it's 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 dark. It's an interesting choice. I don't think it, and I mean let's talk about darkness here for a second. The darkness. Yeah. Um I I I blew that joke. The darkness. What do you think What do you think uh, do you think this is darker than the original? Um I, I suppose to an extent, if only because of there's much more stuff involving organized crime, uh, the drug trade. Uh, they get involved in the whole, riot. There's that whole riot yeah. where they, right. they're they all screaming in the middle of the street, screaming, fuck the police. Uh, yeah, I guess overall this, this, is a, this is a darker movie, even if it's more dark in implication than in execution. Right. It's... Um... Really well done. I think it, it's just such a... No, wait. I, I take that back. I mean, this sequel, it's its a very lazy sequel. I think your idea last episode of them doing a sequel in Amsterdam would have been better than Thailand. Um, and it, it just feels forced. This, is, this isn't a terrible comedy, but considering how great the first one was, they could have tried even just a little bit harder. Um yeah, I, I've had I've had more fun talking about this movie than I have, uh, right. I have watching it. Yeah, like I, it was like six six big laughs, but that was about it for me. Yep. So with um, what do you give sequel yes or sequel no to the Hanover Part Two? I'm I'm gonna give I'm gonna give sequel no, but it's right on the cusp. If you just flat out like Ed Helms and Zach Galifianakis, go ahead and give it a shot. But this, this feels this feels like the third movie in a trilogy suffering from diminishing returns. Yeah, um, Hanover Part Two. I would also give sequel no to. It's it just had to try a little bit harder. I don't know what it is. Like there's some good moments as a whole. It doesn't work. I don't think the the setting in Thailand really helps it. Although you get some nice cinematography, especially when they're flying into Thailand. Um, I mean, I think the best thing about this movie is Mason Lee as uh, Teddy. And I would have liked to have seen more of him in the film. Yeah. 
so with that discussion of Hanover Part 2 finished, uh, let's do Pitch a Sequel. Thrasher, what did you have in mind? Well, I'm going to do... Uh, I'm going to do hang- The Hangover Part 3, uh, and... It's inevitable that in any long-running series with lots of sequels, eventually you're going to go to New York or Japan. So we're going to go to New York. And the premise behind this is it's going to take place a few years later. Teddy has graduated from college. We all want more Teddy, so I'm going to give you more Teddy. Teddy has graduated from college. He has a medical degree. He's all ready to start his own practice, and he's getting married. He's marrying uh, He's marrying a nice woman. Uh, and you know what? Just because I want some stunt casting, he's getting married. Uh, he's getting married to uh, to Sarah Sil- to a character played by Sarah Silverman. And they're gonna get married in New York. And so that's where that's where the wolf pack, the wolf pack, of course, gets invited. And he had such a great time in Taiwan that he puts the wolf pack in charge of his bachelor party. More specifically, he puts Alan in charge of his bachelor party because he's still largely aware of uh, unaware of how screwed up Alan is. So Alan thinks this is absolutely, absolutely great. So they all meet in New York. Uh, they're going to have a night on the town. They're going to go crazy Broadway style. Uh, and they, you know, they get completely wasted. Uh, they wake up and once again, one of them's missing. But here's the catch. Alan is the one who's missing. Oh. Nobody, knows where, nobody knows where Alan is, so they go on a, a, a crazy two-day journey through New York trying to find, uh, trying to find Alan before, uh, before the wedding. And they, they come to find out Leslie Chow will, of course, be involved again. There's a turf war between uh, the triads and the Italian mafia going on, mm. and Alan... Uh, Alan has been has been stolen or has been kidnapped by the Italian mafia to be used as a bargaining chip against Leslie Chow and the Triads, uh, and the whole thing is going to end with a crazy with like a crazy like shootout. They're going to get caught in the middle of a gang war, uh, which is going to leave everyone except Leslie Chow dead. Uh, they're going to get Alan back. They're going to get to. Uh, they're going to get to uh, Central Park where the wedding's going to happen because it's got to end on a set piece. Uh, and once again, we'll end with another crazy montage of photos, all of them being in New York. But we're going to take advantage of the New York setting uh, because what the photos the photos are going to involve them breaking into a performance of Hamilton and joining the performance. Uh, we're going to have them. We're going to see them drinking with with uh, with Rudy Giuliani and and De Blasio. We're gonna we're gonna get as many New York people into those photos as possible. It's gonna be great. My that's pretty cool. My sequel idea would be called um, the Hanover in Space. Oh, so they would uh, it would take place after the uh, let's say the the fifth year anniversary. Of their original soiree in Vegas, and they, they said that the Wolf Pack should should beat up. It's been five years. That's a good anniversary to do it on, and it's in Miami, and uh, things go crazy, and then when they wake up, they're on a, a space shuttle in space, <laughs> and Justin Bartha gets uh, gets left behind, of course, and they have to figure out. You get a lot of zero gravity, gross out gags. It's sort of a mystery why they're on the shuttle, and then you're going to have uh, a scene of panic as they try and do re-entry into Earth, and there's also 
um, there's a uh, there's going to be some gag with like a blow up woman that's stashed in the spaceship. Now, when they get back to Earth, are they going to find out that Crystal the monkey has taken over and it's a real Planet of the Apes situation? No, they they won't. But the um, to to raise the stakes a bit, one of the wolf pack is going to die in space. Really, which one? I think it would have to be Stu because Alan and Stu uh, really don't like each other. Alan really gives Stu a lot of crap, and eventually Alan snaps and snaps Stu's neck. Oh, wow. Because there's hints of darkness to uh, Alan's character. And he'd also, after, right after doing that and he gets caught, he'd be like, well, this isn't the first time I've killed a man. And so you have that sort of Alan doing sort of a crazy Jack Nicholson-style performance in, uh, later in the film. Hmm. This would be called The Hanover in Space. Would be my pitch sequel. Oh my gosh, I just noticed uh, something that this uh, Hangover uh, 2 wasn't the only time that uh, that Ken Jong starred opposite Crystal the Monkey. Crystal the Monkey also plays the monkey in the community episode Annie's Boobs. Ah, okay. So they've worked together <laughs> several yep. times. Pretty neat. I will say, da, 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 yep. Um, so let's do what you're watching. Um, something I've been watching. I've been on a bit of a kick reading some of the Larry McMurtry um, books, and I, I read one called Dead Man's Walk, which is sort of one of two prequel novels to Lonesome Dove, and I was watching the miniseries of it. And um, have you ever seen Lonesome Dove? My mother was really into that series. Mm -hmm. I remember watching uh, watching it with her in the 80s when it first came out. Although, I, sadly, I don't remember too many details. But this prequel version in the lead... So in, the leads in Lonesome Dove are played by Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones. And, and how do you beat that when you're doing a prequel story, right? The answer I is... I dare say you don't. <laughs> you don't. But you're going to try anyway. And so... In the part originally played by... I just want to make sure I have this right, otherwise I'll look like an idiot. Oh, come on. Yeah, playing the Robert Duvall part, uh, take a guess. I honestly don't... Uh, Jeffrey Tambor. No, David Arquette. Okay. For a prequel, right? And then in the other main part... You have um, who the Tommy Lee Jones part is played by Johnny Lee Miller, hmm. who I don't recognize from anything. He was in Hackers, apparently. Oh, he and he's Sherlock computer. on the Elementary Show. I guess that's uh -huh. the pe thing people know him from now. Um, so so far, it's just. Um, it's good. It's faithful to the book. I think the the two leads are kind of bland, but I, I am pleased to see um, it's sort of an episodic adventure about how these guys are young Texas Rangers and they're getting their ass kicked constantly because they're being led by incompetent uh, generals. 
Um, one of which is played by... Oh, what's his name? Brian Dennehy plays one of them. And also another one is played by F. Marie Abraham. Who plays sort of an off-kilter guy with a parrot on his shoulder. But I'm finding it um, enjoyable. Although it it starts off with like this slow motion footage of uh, Native Americans running around as you hear about a prophecy, which it, it's there in the book, but it's not introduced that early. It's sort of done afterwards to explain some uh, climactic scene. Now I have to I have to ask: Is that prophecy introduced in the form of a voiceover? Of course it is. Of course oh, it is. Oh, that's it's, the worst. It's terrible. Not to mention, like, this is one of the shorter Lonesome Dove miniseries. By shorter, I, I'm talking about six hours. Um, because I think the original one might have been, like, 20 hours or something. Like, it, it, the length of these things is pretty can get sort of ridiculous. But also, you get other good actors, like uh, Harry Dean Stanton plays a big part. So does Edward James Olmo. So I haven't gotten that far yet. Um and I'm um, I'm I'm enjoying it so far. You know, I'm trying to watch the book and then read the miniseries and kind of come to my own conclusions. But it's uh, I will say, and this has to also do more when this was made. This particular one was made in 1996. It's filmed in full screen instead of widescreen, which um, I think westerns tend to look better in widescreen. But people had full screen televisions back in those days and so forth. So yeah, Westerns really need sweeping beasts. Uh, right. And, and does so much for and, the genre. Yep. And in, in the square, um, things, you know, the, the, sh the shots of like, a like there's a, a big sequence about, you have a trail, it's full of buff. It's full of so many buffaloes. It'll take you two days on horse to get through the trail, to get through the buffaloes, uh, safely. And when it's not widescreen, that shot kind of loses something, but it's, uh, but I'm, I'm enjoying it despite my complaining. Um, I just think in the leads, um, oh, what's his name? I just had it. Uh, David Arquette is, is not, he's okay. He's not great. And, uh, Johnny Lee Miller is just way too flat as Woodworld Call. Um, also, it's a bit odd. You have, um, what's her name as Clara, Jennifer Garner who looks strange with sort of uh, old Wild West-style hair and clothing. Hmm. All right, what's something you've been watching, Thrasher? Well, uh, as we uh, so as we mentioned on our previous episode, uh, or, or a, I'm sorry, second-to-last episode, uh, you know, with the, we marked the passing of Adam West by re-releasing our sequel commentary for the Batman 66 movie, and I've, I've continued to seek out more the, the work of Adam West. Mm, uh, yeah. To right. mark his passing, I did. Uh, I did rewatch the pilot, Look Well, which I've already spoken of in, on the original sequel cast. I don't want to get drowned just retreading old material. However, uh, uh, DC Entertainment did release uh, the eleventh episode of their sitcom Powerless, which had not had never aired in the United States because the show's been canceled for a few months now. Uh, however, this was the episode that had a guest spot from Adam West. They released it, uh, they released it online. So it is available on their YouTube channel. And I believe it's available hmm. in the States on Hulu now, uh, which is how I watched it. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the last things that Adam West filmed. And, 
I, I was really delighted that it was made available. Uh, and I did, I did watch it, and I really enjoyed his cameo. I just wish it was in something better. Uh, it was in the ep- it was in episode eleven. Uh, the title of the episode is "Win Luthor Draw," uh, which is an no. obscure reference. That was an old game show in the, uh, a game show in the eighties. Was "Win Lose or Draw," which was based around uh, basically Pictionary, the game show. Is what that was. Uh, but the the premise of the episode is that. Uh, the the division of Wayne Industries that all the characters works for is in danger of being downsized. So uh, so one of them figures out a new financial plan that will that restructures that branch so that they don't have to lay anybody off. And the heads of the branch are so impressed uh, are so impressed with her proposal that they use it to increase the clout of the branch and then sell the branch to Lex Luthor's company. Hmm. And. Adam West plays the chairman of the board for uh, for uh, Wayne Industries, uh, and he plays a great, crazy old man. It's a great Adam West performance, and he has this really endearing trait where at the end of every conversation, he, like, l- turns to face the camera and starts narrating the scene like the narrator from the original Batman show from the 60s. And it's it's really funny. But he's the best thing in, in he's the best thing in the episode. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the show isn't up to that quality, and yet there were some strong gags in this episode, and it just reaffirms my 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 notion that if this show had gotten a second season and they could have tightened it up, it would have become worth watching. Yeah, I'm a bit surprised it didn't get a second season. When you see like some shows that did get a second season, like the Exorcist TV show got a second season at the last minute. Um, the Lethal Weapon TV show got a second season. Like, even back when Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. started, people were surprised that got a second season, because that was not well-received at all. Yeah, um, most of the the first season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was abysmal. Nearly it unwatchable. Good at the end, though. Yeah. Um, what do you the think thi- about... Um, oh, have you been watching the, the X-Men show at all? Uh, Legion? Legion, yeah. Yes, I did see Legion. That was very good. Can it, I watch? Is it separate from like the movie continuity, or like is it based uh, on the comics, or what's they that are about? All, they are always hinting that it takes place in the same continuity of the movies, but it's 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 its own self-contained thing, which I really like. And I see that Brian Singer is producing a, a show and directing the pilot for an X Men, another X Men TV show called Gifted. Yeah, well, well, we'll have to see what happens with that when it comes out. But you know, it's it's strange about this particular episode of of Powerless because Adam, when it comes down to it, Adam West is the biggest guest star that this this short series, twelve episode series, has ever had. And this whole episode feels like a season finale. This should have been the second episode aired. Mm, yeah, it to get people gotten, to watch it, right? Yeah, if you said, "Hey, DC Comics show, and the original Batman's going to be on it." Why mm. wouldn't you watch it? Like this, it boggles my mind that this episode was never going to air. If this, we would not have this episode if Adam West hadn't died. Right. It's it's another another baffling decision from the minds at DC. But anyway, yeah. If you're if you're still if you're still looking for new Adam West. Uh, you know, projects to kind of 
just kind of sate you as you as you uh, as you acclimatize yourself to a world without Adam West, I would say it is worth checking out. Win Luthor Draw, it's it's the best episode of a not good series, and he's fantastic in it. Well, very good. Well, uh, tune in next week for Sequel Cast Two, and we'll take a look at the Hanover Part Three for a Sequel Cast Two. This is Matt. You can follow me at matwbt on Twitter. You can follow me at Internet Mayor on Twitter. And you can follow uh, the show at SequelCast2 on Twitter. And uh, be sure to like us on Facebook. Just look up SequelCast2 and leave a review on iTunes. Just search for SequelCast2. You can also listen to SequelCast2 on Stitcher. And you can listen to SequelCast2 on the Podbean app on your smartphone. We've got our tendrils everywhere. Mm-mm-mm. Um, that was... In the so style anyway. of John Lovitz for no good reason. Yeah. Um, well, well, well. Every night after filming Saturday Night Live, I ate a piece of chocolate cake. Twenty year, five years later, I gained fifty pounds. I had no idea why that happened. <laughs> well, if you if you can't tell by our insane ramblings, Bangkok has us now. Sequel Cast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Retention podcast fleet. Find another great film and TV podcast at battleshipretention.com. The theme song to Sequel Cast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at markwiththesea.com. You can also listen to Sequel Cast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to stitcher.com and search for Sequel Cast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension fleet. 